0: Welcome to Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada, the only software solution purpose-built to securely run complex and high-value infrastructure procurement. All your infrastructure procurement processes in one place, all in order. And join me, Ratna Amin, as I speak with the movers and shakers at the intersection of the public, private, and civic sectors about the latest breakthroughs and developments in the world of infrastructure, Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Vice President of Narrative Strategies at The Solutions Project, Sarah Shanley-Hope. Sarah joins me to discuss using narrative strategy and relational infrastructure to change communities and infrastructure from the ground up. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, Rhett, and I'm so honored to be here. It's great to see you. Sarah, you are Vice President of Narrative Strategies at the Solutions Project. I'm excited to talk to you a lot about that and what that means and what your organization does and how you view infrastructure, because I think it's a pretty different perspective than mainstream infrastructure conversation, especially what you might see on the news or hear about with Congress and big funding bills. So I'm excited to dive into that. But maybe before we do that, Sarah, can you give us a quick snapshot of your career? Because it's been quite interesting and unique. Thank you for that. And yeah, I
1: you know I just had a birthday last week. And so I'm officially middle-aged. I have entered my middle age. And so when I think about my career path, I'm like at that point where I can, and I've got kids. So I can like start to look back and see, how my career path actually began in my upbringing and in my community growing up in Buffalo, New York, and has taken lots of twists and turns over 25 years of working really in social change, but from like different issue areas and different kind of positions on the field.
0: I'm interested in your use of the word field. So help us, me and anyone's listening and know what you mean by that, because we'll probably refer to it a few different times in this conversation. And I think that is what makes your career path clear is that connection to the field and what I'd call the ground. So can you talk about that and maybe your experiences learning to work in the field?
1: Yes. So this might be a good moment for me to define and make some meaning in the phrase that we'll hit on a lot today, which is social infrastructure. So The idea of social infrastructure is really something that I've learned that we at the Solutions Project have learned from our grassroots grantee partners. And so these are community organizations working at the neighborhood level all across the country, predominantly led by people of color and overwhelmingly disinvested in in terms of physical infrastructure, in terms of what you might think of as like traditional infrastructure, capital, buildings, different typical functions in an organization. But for me, growing up in Buffalo, New York, that social infrastructure, really the relationships that my parents like fostered, really to make way in a context where both of my parents were not from Buffalo. They were from other Midwestern places, Milwaukee and Detroit, and like a lot of humans, period. But I think a lot of parents of their generation, there was some real breaks generationally. Like they didn't have strong relationships with their families of origin, with their parents. And so growing up in Buffalo, my parents really created what is starting to get more traction. And there's a great book, Mia Birdsong's book. It's really about chosen family. Like if you're operating where you've got two working parents, my parents both worked in the public sector, my dad for the Buffalo public school system, my mom for county social services, you know, and you've got two kids, you actually can't do it alone. And increasingly now, 44 years later from when I was born, even those basic public examples of social infrastructure no longer exist. And so more and more families, and particularly Black, Indigenous, immigrant communities and families throughout the United States in particular has been my experience, do What my family did, which is you really build those relationships with your neighbors. You're really, you know, to help if I'm sick from school, home from school, my parents both had to go to work. And so there was a retired couple next door that really became my grandparents, Jaja and Babsha, which is Polish for grandpa and grandma. My family's not Polish. We didn't have a blood bond in terms of our relationships. We had more of that social fabric that is really rooted at the community level. So a lot of my values, a lot of my experience, a lot of what I learned works and is the source of abundance and innovation and making ways out of no way really comes from that experience growing up. Buffalo is like one of the most racially segregated cities in the country. And when I was growing up, I lived in one of the few middle-class communities that were racially integrated, predominantly Black and white families and attended a magnet public school. So like that kind of intentionality from my upbringing and then it kind of translated in my career brought those community relationships to that next level of social infrastructure? How are we actually showing up for each other in solidarity and mutual aid and starting to build power together? You know, like what do we want our schools to be like? What do we want our parks or public lands to be providing for our neighbors and for our communities? And You know, when I went to college, when I was an activist in high school, kind of early career was really studying social movements. And my work at the Solutions Project, yeah, again, has brought my upbringing and values pathway into the same river as the frontline leaders, predominantly women of color. I think it's important to note there is a kind of expertise and practice in this kind of social infrastructure building within communities of color and particularly among women who are often the backbones of their communities.
0: Thank you Sarah for all of that and it hit me in several ways and I want to help build some bridges so to speak over to what I would call sort of mainstream notions of infrastructure but we need to get rid of that in a way because For one thing, I grew up in a household that relied a lot on our ethnic community, I'm Indian, and we were not surrounded by other Indian families, but you could always rely on another Indian family and to some extent our neighbors, but that was a lot of effort my parents put into building local relationships. So I understand that idea of family and extended family as social infrastructure, but also as a alternative and maybe a better alternative to physical infrastructure sometimes. What I mean by that is I think about how we hop on airplanes to go make a connection, which is very infrastructure and pollution intensive when we could actually maybe meet a similar need in our lives more locally if we had healthier social infrastructure, similar for work or for getting other physical needs met. We might be able to do it in a much more nourishing and close by way if we had for folks who have social infrastructure that can offer that. I
1: think that's exactly right. It is what we've seen. And of course, as we think about the climate crisis, let alone the crisis in our democracy and in our healthcare system, there's these compounding crises that are occurring, you know, not just in the United States, but globally right now, or this period of history, it's really the both and, you know, like physical infrastructure, public infrastructure is paramount. And it is incredibly outdated, disinvested in, it's not fulfilling the promises that even that public infrastructure is there to fulfill. And so the social infrastructure and social movements specifically are really galvanizing force to show a better way to your point, like here are more effective and higher trust examples of how to better build public infrastructure, how Mm -hmm. to better connect public infrastructure and to really fulfill the promise of public infrastructure. And so very specific example, the Solutions Project were a national US public foundation and intermediary. And what that means is that we really operate in between as a bridge builder between donors, foundations, philanthropy, and grassroots communities and movements that are kind of the source of innovation and you know you can imagine there's so many differences in those two communities And you better believe there's social infrastructure and philanthropy. It's the same as you think about in government or in industry. It's typically the good old boys club. That is an example of dominant social infrastructure where the currency is proximity to power, to traditional power. It's really a lot of transactional behaviors that you think about, the negotiations that are required in passing and implementing policy, all of that is definitely through a more dominant social infrastructure context. And then again, like the social infrastructure that Solutions Project supports on the ground in grassroots communities is really disrupting that. The currency is accountability, is respect, is solidarity, which means like actually showing up and figuring out what do I have to bring to the table? What do you have to bring to the table for a shared purpose? And to me, that's the moment that we're in, in terms of social infrastructure and public or physical infrastructure coming together. You see really within like three years ago, the first few weeks of COVID, we had grantee partners in You know, again, Push Buffalo in Buffalo, New York, which is a community based organization that through community land trusts over 15 years has basically banked, you know, 100 plus city lots of abandoned houses and really built out public physical infrastructure in affordable housing that then is the foundation for greening and job creation, everything from geothermal heating to energy efficiency, solar installation. And so when COVID hit, that combined social infrastructure, the community organizing, the service providers for the affordable housing, they were already trusted and in relationship with The elders, the vulnerable members of the community that when essential jobs in grocery stores or food service did not pay their employees because they couldn't actually operate their businesses during the first many months of lockdown, Push was able to respond faster than the government, faster than the Red Cross, faster than really any direct service organization in that community because they had that trust. They had that integration of social and physical infrastructure. So, you know, nobody could come to the office. They had just opened up New York State's first community solar powered, basically a retrofit of an old school that was turned into affordable housing and community space. They were able to move very quickly to set that up as a mutual aid distribution center bags of groceries, PPE, medicine. They were able to go door to door. They knew who the people were in their community that really, because of language differences, because of previous bad experiences with the government, wouldn't necessarily have access to the early information about COVID. So that is a really great example of where social infrastructure and public infrastructure come together. We also saw it in the Navajo Nation and Oglala Lakota territory in South Dakota on Pine Ridge Reservation, where again our grantee partners, Native Renewables and Navajo and Hopi Nations, Thunder Valley Community Development Corporation on Pine Ridge Reservation were first responders. And this was in addition to their core mission of advancing a just transition to a green economy and climate justice. So I hope that was
0: helpful. Yeah, it's great. And it's great to get specific examples because anybody in the United States, wherever you are, there are these kinds of groups operating on the ground, maybe you're a part of them or, or rely on them in certain moments of need or need to distribute something nearby or help others. And what I think is interesting here, Sarah, is connecting that to bigger projects, to shared infrastructure across communities, to public agencies. And I think that's the moment we're in. You're describing is bringing that ethos into the public sector and for it to not be. I wonder if some people find that threatening and say like, oh, no, that's not how we do infrastructure. Well, It's just not how we've done infrastructure for the last 60 years when it became very institutionalized with big agencies and big funding bills. What I hear and what I'm feeling is we're inventing a new way of working together between what is on the ground, the folks on the ground, relationships on the ground and institutions who are charged and see as their mission to build infrastructure. And what does it look like to integrate these two groups in a more synergistic way? I also just want to touch on the word trust that you brought up how to have a more trusted process. A lot of the guests on our show are public agency leaders who are in a very fraught process of building projects. You are concerned about lawsuits or politics all the time. Can you talk about how that could be a more trusted process of working together to imagine, design, procure, then build, and then operate and maintain and tend to a piece of infrastructure?
1: One, I want to say I empathize with the fear i think again like these compounding crises mean that the role of government has never been more important and the attacks on government have never been more threatening obviously we had an attempted coup in this country And so, you know, I think that that empathy for those leaders within agencies at all levels of government who are there, they've got the data, especially if they're working in really every agency at this point is impacted by the climate crisis and climatic events. And to start to have like part of building trust is really grounding in that empathy is understanding what's the same and also what's even deeper in terms of the risk and the crisis that frontline communities of color in particular are experiencing and have been experiencing for decades, if not centuries, you know? So to me, what I see in our work at the Solutions Project as we're really listening to our frontline partners and receiving a lot of calls from friends in high places (laughs) is needing to kind of rush processes without having any kind of relationship in place. So that relational infrastructure is absent. Even where you have trusted movement leaders in key positions in government, that takes a lot of time to reorient To like a different position on the field, you know, so using that kind of metaphor of like a soccer team or whatever, you know, of a sports team. And so beginning with humility, really grounding in your own dignity as like a public servant and with the host of responsibilities and pressures that you're under and not projecting that onto community organizations that have 99 problems and yours isn't one, you know? And instead of like that projection of your problem onto grassroots communities, instead identifying what's the shared solution. What have these frontline communities because of their robust social infrastructure and organizing success Again, in, in some cases over decades, in in many cases, from our experience at Solutions Project, inspiring the Biden Harris administration's Justice 40 initiative, key provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, like there are so many shared solutions there that, yeah, coming with that awareness and that respect for what these unlikely alliances and kind of new ways of moving together across not just community and government, but industry and philanthropy and, you know, Solutions Project works in the entertainment industry. So like thinking about cultural influencers, like, and the media, like there really is just as many conflict zones. There are an equal amount of creative Fears. But it just takes a different mindset. It takes a different stance. It does take a little patience and curiosity to start. And that can feel counterintuitive to the urgency and the pressure of the moment. But there's a proverb, right, where if you want to go fast, you have to go alone. And if you want to go far, you, you have to go together and be at that pace, you know. So we see those shifts, the Solutions Project, again, like given our role, our position on the field as a movement accountable intermediary funder with a track record of success over nearly a decade, with a Fast Company Innovation Award, with a National Committee of Responsive Philanthropy Award, we were asked by one of our grantee partners, the Partnership for Southern Equity in Atlanta, to help stand up the Justice40 accelerator. Really within a month was when our partners came to us and said, we want you to join us and help us build this, a month after the Justice40 initiative executive order was given. And to date, we've been able to support through that kind of pilot partnership, we've been able to support 101 Black, Indigenous, people of color-led grassroots organizations to really assess and engage and in many cases apply for public funding for the first time. And it's small scale because of it being a pilot and because of the Huge chasm between government agencies and frontline communities of color that exists. But we've had more than $15 million of public funding, one, by cohort members who again, applying for public dollars for the first time. In addition to the Justice 40 Accelerator Solutions Project's larger sphere of grantee partners, we support more than 200 grassroots organizations across our core grant making program and these what we call ecosystem funds that we help stand up and the Justice 40 Accelerator being one of three in that category. But across our total set of relationships, more than $75 million in public funding awarded to our grantees for these really innovative and intersectional community solutions to the climate crisis that are exactly what agency leaders are looking for right now. There's just no relationship bridge and philanthropy is still really slow to support building
0: this kind of infrastructure. That's amazing. Congratulations on that achievement. I'm so curious what it took for on both sides to change the process of getting government money to smaller organizations, to groups that haven't typically gotten government money, I'm guessing, through these types of funds. Typically, we know that the majority of large government contracts will go to large organizations that are very professionalized at going through a process to get that funding or the project. And so I'm curious what it took to shift that dynamic.
1: Well, one, I'd say that is still the case. You know, everything from all these reports about FEMA dollars literally not reaching the impacted communities that- The policy, the law intends for those dollars to reach. And that's just one agency and one kind of public funding stream where the people and the communities of color, largely most impacted by a disaster event, see no public support, really, you know? So changing that total system is going to take a lot more than you know, a single intervention. But within the Justice 40 Accelerator and this really specific opportunity, right? It's like, again, it's a shared solution. 99 Problems, we didn't focus on the 99 Problems. We focused on, okay, the Justice 40 Initiative is a historic opportunity that was a victory of the climate justice movement. It was inspired by our grantees winning in your state The Climate and Community Protection Act, which carved out 30 to 40 percent of public investments and benefits for this transition to a clean energy economy for EJ communities, for environmental justice communities, for the legal language at the federal level is like for vulnerable communities. So that was a victory Justice 40 initiative. So that is a lever, a little wedge that we're able to like bring in to public funding streams at the federal level that did not exist before the Biden Harris administration. And just to give you a sense of the scale, if you applied that 40% mandate at the federal level, they went further than the New York policy, but they, in terms of the 40% focus, but they lost some of the substance of the New York policy by not clarifying investments. So at the federal level, it's about benefiting vulnerable communities, not directly investing. So it reinforces what you named, which is these dollars overwhelmingly go to big organizations already doing huge contracts with the government, private companies. And so the Justice 40 Accelerator is really designed to like, okay, if we've got this wedge in here around Justice 40 initiative, 40% benefits to vulnerable communities. How do we actually use that, focus on the solution here? The federal government wants public funds to actually reach the communities that are most impacted by the climate crisis, have the most innovative and Impactful solutions that actually improve people's lives across race, class, rural, urban, red, blue, purple states. How do we kind of use this focus just to show what's possible? We're not going to change the whole system overnight, but we can at least start to stand up what's possible. And you can imagine the amount of, yeah, relational conversations and education and like you actually can't do it this way because you're going to prevent grassroots organizations from even considering applying. Our CEO, Gloria Walton, always says like trust is built in the work. And so that's what we've been figuring out with the Justice 40 Accelerator is like bit by bit, opportunity by opportunity, how do we actually learn by doing and do it together in this shared purpose but it's very
0: challenging Uh, that's really helpful i think for folks to hear more about what it looks like and feels like to be in this work on either side of the public infrastructure development process to be maybe on the more the funder development government side or to be on the side of the user or those who want more power or understand the needs better I wanna ask you more about what you do in your role with narrative strategy. What is narrative strategy briefly? Have I seen narrative strategy in my community and why does it matter? Why have you chosen to invest in this strategy? There's a great saying, I think
1: it's Peter Drucker in management literature. Culture eats strategy for lunch, you know, is the saying that I think most people understand. It's the culture and story and ideas like these are the waters that we swim in. And basically those cultural contexts, the news we read, the books we read, the HBO Max series that we binge, you know, the music that we listen to. These are all examples of channels for popular narratives that really shape public opinion. They shape politics and really, obviously, in the political sphere, the notion of a culture war has been central to understanding, frankly, the rise of fascism and the public, white supremacist, homophobic, sexist, all of those Those are narratives. Those are worldviews, ways of organizing a complex world that is really the terms of those stories really shape our imaginations of what's possible for ourselves, for our families, for our country. And so for me, focusing on narrative strategy is really seeking to contest power in the cultural sphere, in the waters that we swim in. So that growing up in Buffalo, New York, the dominant stories about Buffalo, it's like constant snowstorms, loser of Super Bowls, all of these stories about a post-industrial dying city. Buffalo, you know, at the turn of the 20th century was like one of the 10 richest and largest cities in the United States. Like definitely not the case today. And it was community organizing and narrative really at the local level, the community imaginations that disrupted that said, we're not victims here. We're not just here waiting for somebody else to come and save us. No, we've got incredible resources in our people, in the place that we love and call home, in our natural resources that we are stewards of. Let's start building power here to change what is possible in our lives and in our communities. And so narrative strategy is part of a larger approach to social change and doing better in the world. And for me personally, you know, I have a marketing MBA is my training, you know, my entrance into the climate movement was working for Van Jones at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. And he's certainly one of the best public communicators of his generation. I've learned a lot of what not to do in my time at Ella Baker Center and Green for All as well. But yeah, I just, I can't think of a better place that's like a match for my gifts and what sparks joy in my life than focusing on narrative change. And I think that's the big invitation for anyone is like in this time of like great change is we need you know, Naomi Klein says to change everything needs everyone. And so it's really figuring out what is your calling? What are your gifts? Who are your relationships that can help kind of provide that relational infrastructure for you to have kind of the greatest impact that you can right now?
0: That's such great advice. I feel like that sums it all up, Sarah, what you've learned by middle age about how to fulfill your own purpose in this work because anyone tuned into this cares. People are listening because they care. Then what, what is going to be fulfilling for you and powerful for the world? I have two last questions for you, Sarah, that we've been asking every guest. So first one is about managing big projects, keeping track of big projects, keeping track of a big funding bill or, you know, something very local can be stressful, I imagine, for you and your partners. So where do you find order in the chaos?
1: I think, you know, I can speak most to the nonprofit and social change sphere. But I I imagine this is relevant for government and for industry as well, is As we're going through major changes in our economy, in our culture, in like our politics as well, the culture of management is not getting enough attention in terms of just how important this is so tactical, but just how important like project planning, management, and evaluation are as a skill set and as a set of tools in leading change and the scale of change the complexity of change right now you're having to develop skills and tools and plans project management plans that cross organizations cross sectors cross projects even you know i'm still learning that i'm earlier in my own skill building and practice there most of my career has been in early stage and startup organizations, you know, more, more of that, like Adrienne Marie Brown, like emergent strategy, like sphere of planning. And again, I'm partnering with our now CEO, Gloria Walton. She's been in the role for about two and a half years, came from one of our inaugural grantee partners in South Central Los Angeles, Scope where she was the ED for six years, a organizer there for another 10. And this is true for any community organizer. Like the plans are the Bible, you know? Like it's a science and an art to organize neighbors who are not quote unquote political to like actually come together and move a political agenda, a big idea, a narrative strategy, all of those things. And so I just think it's paramount to have that clarity, to have that agreement, to have that pacing and sequencing, to have those accountability loops, that planning and evaluation and those tools really support. Did I answer your question?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You answered it fantastically. I would love to do a whole nother program about that because it's so important and invisible the management systems that any one person, organization, or group uses to do their work. What also occurs to me is this is very interesting common ground between organizations, both public, private, industry, grassroots, is this area of tools, and there could be a lot of shared learning actually back and forth. So I have to put a pin in that one for the future, Sarah. So one last question for you, Is there any major infrastructure project, which in our case can include social infrastructure anywhere in the world that's on your bucket list to go and see one day?
1: I mean, I don't, you know, I will hope to see this over the next three years because it's social infrastructure, you know, that solutions project has been funding and helping to amplify the the success stories and powerful coming together of communities in Jackson, Mississippi, in the Gulf South, in Florida, in Puerto Rico, where the news coverage makes this kind of a household context where public infrastructure has collapsed in the face of, again, kind of the compounding climate crisis and crisis in our democracy. And so in those places, Solutions Project grantee partners have been responding with mutual aid, with actually designing their own technology solutions for, you know, solar battery storage, water filtration, you know, regenerative agriculture. And so I'm so excited and inspired to see some of that work and meet the people, strengthen our own relational infrastructure with those organizations and the communities they serve. People's Advocacy Institute in Jackson, Mississippi, Casa Pueblo in Puerto Rico, Make the Homeless Smile in Miami, just incredible organizations that are the embodiment of relational infrastructure in these times of crisis.
0: Oh, that's so exciting, Sarah, and and honestly, so different than going to look at a tunnel or a bridge or a train station. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Sarah, for being on the show. This has been such a delightful time, really provocative, and I'm just so excited about the work you're doing at the Solutions Project. It's time to say a big thank you to Sarah Shanley-Hope for being with us today. I really enjoyed discussing relational infrastructure and the amazing work she's been doing to build a better future for those who need it. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, I'm Ratna Amin, and this has been Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada.